This evening I want to explore really the complement of the kind of process that Eve gave very beautifully last night in talking about the ways that the heart develops through the Brahma-vihara, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, adding gratitude and forgiveness that we explored um, this morning. Excuse me? My mic is not what? You can't hear it? It's not high enough is what you're saying? Okay, it's not loud enough? Okay. Did you hear what I already said? Recap. (laughs) It's recorded. (laughs) Tonight I want to talk on the importance of having a good cushion. No, no, that's not it. Now, tonight I want to talk on the really, in a way, complementary to last night, uh, and that is to um, look at the one type of transformation. We've talked about how there are really two wings by which transformation occurs. One is by being mindful of the judgmental mind, studying it, going into it, exploring it in more depth. And the second is developing more awakened qualities, beautiful qualities, such as the qualities of the awakened heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, as well as gratitude and forgiveness. And so tonight I want to look at one of those approaches, again, complementing what we explored last night, and giving a map, which is brought out in the diagram on what you have uh, in front of you, of four stages of transforming particularly regular chronic judgments. And this will give a kind of orientation for the next uh, few days that we'll be exploring in more depth this transformative process. I thought I'd begin with um, some comments on judgments that I had in dialogue with uh, Sky Cushman. Some of you may know Ann Cushman. Anyone know Ann? Is a teacher often at Spirit Rock and Uh, yoga teacher, and um, one year uh, we were teaching the retreat on transforming the judgmental mind, and there was another retreat going on at Spirit Rock at the same time, and Anne and Sky were there, and we had lunch, and Sky was nine at the time, and so he asked about um, what we were doing and working with the judgmental mind, and we we, we had this dialogue. This was Sky at age nine. He's now, what, 14 or 15, maybe, maybe older. 
He's written two novels. He's quite, quite something. So these were his, his incisive comments about the judgmental mind. He said, we need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. <laughs> and then I said, who polices the judgmental police? And he responded, themselves. They lock up the judgmental, judgmental police. <laughs> and so I said, so they have to be pretty mature, huh? And he said, yes. <laughs> and I thought I'd also uh, frame uh, the talk this evening uh, some by talking about the way that this practice of transforming judgments finds a place in the traditional Buddhist map of awakening. You know, how do we place this, in a way, more contemporary mode of transformation that certainly uses very traditional tools, many traditional tools, but also makes use of contemporary resources, more particularly more psychological and social in nature. And so how does this fit within the larger map of uh, awakening? Very, very traditional. And I thought that we can point to the way that in traditional practice there really is a very similar kind of balance between essentially going into the hard stuff on the one hand and developing beautiful qualities on the other. And in fact, when I look at my own retreats, particularly the initial ones, they sometimes alternated between being with uh, difficult states. Actually, they started perhaps luckily with good, beautiful, wonderful states. You know, where I could, you know, would initially I would feel the way the, uh, you know, my mind would get, got clear in some of my, my first or second retreat. And uh, the kind of the nature of the energetic body opened up, which was very mysterious and amazing. And, uh, you know, I, my, my mind was quiet, uh, perception got heightened could look at a tree and say, wow, a tree. <laughs> right? And um, wondrous, I said, I'm signing up. I'm in this. This is great. You know, and then, of course, a little bit of a setup for you know, a retreat or two later, it was what? Fear. <laughs> you know, or you know, the challenges of the body not being always comfortable and so forth. And, and, and in a way, some of the retreats alternated. And I think it's, you know, generally, there's a kind of time when we go into difficulties, and maybe it's when we're ready to some extent to do that, right? I think there's, there's an inner wisdom that's almost uh, intuitive and in some ways unconscious in which we, op we know it's okay to open up and so, and so forth. And there's that alternation which really in a way mirrors you know, our map here of these two approaches, one investigating, which just to a significant extent goes into harder stuff, you know, the pain with judgments and some of what we'll explore tonight, and then the, the process of 
really developing the qualities of awakening, developing the heart practices, the heart qualities, the uh, you know what are sometimes called the factors of awakening, which are mindfulness and inquiry and energy and joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. These get these get developed, and they're and both happen. And in a way, we need these certain degree the positive qualities to have the resources to go into the hard stuff. They're quite they're quite complementary. And so we have the, you know, we, in a way, some of you know the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is the most concise map of the practice. And in a way, the first two of the Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, or, or usually translated as suffering. I like to translate it as reactivity. And its cause, you know, the cause of reactivity or the cause of that dukkha. This is going into the harder stuff, the first two truths. And then the third and fourth noble truths are the possibility of being free of reactivity and suffering and the way to get there. Sort of like the bad news and the good news. And this is, again, this is, I think, uh, kind of a map of our practice. And there's, for me, a very concise way of talking about the Four Noble Truths, which in some way can even, for some of us, be more accessible. And that's the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know that teaching of the two arrows? Quite a few of you. It's wonderful and very relevant for our work with judgments. Here it is. I'll give it to you briefly. The Buddha was once talking with a group of practitioners. And he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And he said, everyone at times has difficult physical experiences. We at times have difficult emotional or mental experiences. We're sometimes treated unjustly or unfairly. All of us have these experiences at times. He said, this is like being shot by an arrow. And we call this the first arrow. He said, in that Practitioners and non-practitioners are identical. Everyone experiences at times unpleasant experiences. So doing this practice, going to the depths of the practice, doesn't save you from unpleasant experiences. The Buddha, even later in his life, had a bad back. Even had some headaches. So that's... I think that's clear, right? We're all at times shot by a first arrow. He said, where the difference is, is that the non-practitioner, which includes us when we aren't practicing, (laughs) the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. It's very much like Eve's wonderful expression. I forget how that was. You know, like we... We, um, maybe we get judged and we judge back in return as if that would work. I forget how you expressed it. And you said very clearly, and this, this is wrong. <laughs> Do you remember that? I think it was paraphrasing more or less. And the second arrow is like that. And so we tense, we uh, have some unpleasant body sensations. We tend to tense in the body. 
Some physicians say as much as 80% of chronic pain, at least some forms of chronic pain, is tensing around the original stimulus. So no coincidence that the first medical application of mindfulness and meditation was in the field of chronic pain by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. We can very easily see how we do that emotionally, have a difficult experience, and we may blame or judge ourselves or blame or judge someone else right after we have that difficult emotional experience. Or someone says something mean to me, and I react back instantly towards that person. I have a difficult experience. I blame myself. I have a difficult thought. I say, I blame myself for that. I judge myself, and so forth. That's called shooting the second arrow. And we do that, we saw with judgments, as if that would help. And to paraphrase Eve, it doesn't. <laughs> it makes things worse, doesn't it? Right? And so it's, it's also, and so the strategy is to learn how to respond skillfully to the presence of the first arrow. In other words, to run, respond skillfully to the presence of the unpleasant. And that's not easy. Right? It's not easy in our own experience, we have habitual tendencies to react. Anytime we're reacting, we're likely shooting the second arrow. When we're judging, we're typically shooting the second arrow. It can make some sense of why I was saying that judgments are typically some kind of defense mechanism against feeling pain. That pain, we could say, is the first arrow. And the reaction is the second arrow. And so it's such a key part of our practice to learn not to shoot the second arrow. Partly, this means we have to actually learn to be present with the unpleasant. Sometimes hang out with it. So part of our mindfulness practice is to, at times, when we're not creating further damage, to be with the unpleasant physical sensations. Definitely at times to be mindful of difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, to be with them. Some we have to train further because we have habitual tendencies when something unpleasant comes just to, oh, get rid of it. Got to go somewhere else or react in some way. And then we have to learn how to be skillful in all sorts of ways with unpleasant emotions, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant interactions, knowing that we have habitual tendencies to shoot the second arrow. And, you know, and towards the end of the retreat, we'll work with interactive situations and start to get a sense of what is skillful speech and skillful way of responding in those kind of situations. One way to talk about the two arrows is to say that the first arrow is in a way the presence of the unpleasant, we could call that pain. And the second arrow could be translated as suffering. This gives a kind of a technical distinction between pain and suffering. And that can be very confusing if you hear Buddhist teachings, because when we talk about the dukkha as suffering, it's confusing. 
because in English we often use pain and suffering synonymously. But it's really, there's really a very fundamental distinction. Pain that we can say, if we, if we are more precise, is the presence of the unpleasant and the suffering is the reactivity. It's the resistance to what's happening. And that is very different from simply having the unpleasant be, be there. Very important distinction between the two. When you hear the Buddha say, the aim is to overcome and have dukkha end, it doesn't at all mean that the unpleasant ends, but it means that it's possible for the reactivity to end. Really crucial. And so when we look to then where does the, um, where does the practice of transforming judgments fall in, in Buddhist practice, we can see that it, it really works in, I think, two main ways. One is that it lets us study one of the main forms of reactivity and work with it and learn to be with situations without shooting the second arrow in the form of judgments. We learn to do that better. We also learn the nature of this central type of reactivity, the second way, the central way that we shoot the second arrow. And I think the other main way that this really fits into traditional Buddhist practice is by the fact that one of the main ways that we work to uh, study ourselves is by studying what are called the three characteristics, or there, it could be called the three ways of seeing that liberate. And these are seeing, as Eve said, impermanence, seeing the nature of dukkha, her reactivity, and then seeing the nature of the self. And when we look at uh, judgments and the judgmental mind, we actually can see much more clearly some of the ways that judgments are connected in a way with almost like fixated uh, constructs of self. That's what we'll be looking at more this evening. And that when and I said that uh, two nights ago, judgments are a royal road for the trans of transformation. And part of that is because they, they make very visible the uh, sort of fixated or habitual notions of self. I, I like to use the language that they help us see the thick self. You know, like, you know, a lot of my habitual reactions, the reason they're auto, so automatic is because they're habitual and often unconscious. And working with judgments helps bring them to consciousness. We'll, we'll explore that more with the model. And in doing so, uh, working with judgments gets at some very fundamental types of ignorance. You know, a lot of the way we can look at Buddhist practice traditionally is that it cuts through ignorance. Ignorance is taken to be the main problem by uh, the Buddhist path, in the Buddhist path, you know? And essentially all of us have this beautiful nature, but it gets covered over. Uh, in the eighth century, Shantideva said, this world is beset by insanity due to the efforts of those who are ignorant about themselves. Look at the world. You can really see some deep, and particularly this deep ignorance of our depths 
as beings of love and wisdom, the way that gets covered over. You know, we can see that again. We can see that sometimes with what happens to children and, uh, and so forth. So um, there's a way in which our judgment work really gets, and we'll see in more depth what that means, at a fundamental kind of ignorance. So in this map, there are four types, or I should say four basic stages that I work with. And we've been working especially so far with the first stage. And I'll talk about each of the stages. And this, in a way, will orient us for some of the work we'll do tomorrow and on, on Saturday. This will give us, um, give us a kind of a map for some of where we'll go in these days, and then some of where we can go you know, after we finish the retreat, as we continue to, to do this work. So the first, basically the first stage is moving from habitual, ordinary experience into investigating and exploring judgments. That's the first stage. The second stage is quite a deep stage, and it can take you know, quite a while. I think we'll have glimpses. I think we'll have glimpses of the second and third stage. And some of you, you know, depending on our backgrounds, even I think everyone will have some glimpses of the second and third stage. The second stage is when some of the roots of our most regular, persistent, chronic judgments start to become visible. The third stage is how we transform those deep roots of our most regular chronic judgments. And then the fourth stage is how we then integrate that transformation into our daily lives. In some ways, the much of the first, second, and third stage need to occur in somewhat protected environments, like a retreat, formal meditation, sometimes psychological work. They need a certain amount of protection. We can do them in daily life, but we need to have, they need to be a little bit away from the hustle and bustle, so to speak. And, and then we do, you know, it's very much like the meditative work. We do certain kinds of inner work, and then very crucial, and we'll talk about this towards the end of the retreat, we need to find ways to keep that going when we get more busy, when life is more complex, and so forth. And of course, with retreats, we deliberately keep things simple. One of the reasons for silence, for um, not having much input, you know, um, and so forth. Okay, so I'll go through each of these four and um, make, really bring out how we do this work. And the first stage will be, at this point, somewhat familiar. You know, first we could say we really develop and bring, bring kind, kind of collect certain tools and resources. It's like we're climbing a mountain. You know, with this diagram, we're, we're kind of, it's kind of the reverse image. We're going into the depths. It's kind of like a upside down mountain. <laughs> and so, but uh, it's like, maybe, maybe it's like we're going into the depths 
and we, you know, maybe we're like doing the equivalent of deep sea diving, okay? And we need to have certain tools and resources, maybe even some training to be able to do that. We don't just go into the second stage without preparation. That would be unwise and it wouldn't work, right? And so, um, so we develop these uh, capacities. We, at first, may not even know that we're under the thrall of the judgmental mind. They may just be happening and we sometimes suffer and we don't know why. And then we start to, maybe someone tells us, judgmentally or not, Donald, you're so judgmental. <laughs> right? It was like I remember when I was first practicing, I had a very close friend and one day we were talking about right speech and she said, Donald, you don't really employ right speech particularly. <laughs> I said, whoa. <laughs> and I said, I kind of said to myself, I think you're right, but I want to. <laughs> you know, and it actually was helpful, you know. Friends being honest with us, even if they're a little judgmental, as I think she was. <laughs> if we take it in a certain way, it can be helpful. Okay, and so, um, so at a certain point, we start saying judgments are an issue. And we start looking at them, and maybe we say, you know, maybe we come here and I say, okay, you want really three core tools. You want to develop mindfulness, you want to develop a heart practice, and good to have a body practice, right? And, and so we start developing that. We start cultivating our mindfulness. Some of us uh, have been doing that for years. Some of us are doing it more intensively just on this retreat or maybe in the last months. You know, we develop mindfulness. We start developing the um, heart practices. You know, and we start maybe developing the body practices. You know, and particularly, um, we start having this sense of how we can both explore the judgments and see them and work with them. And we can also have the times when we use the heart practices as an antidote or just hang out with them to... Um, have some of those qualities that, or properties that Eve named, the, the balancing, having the heart practices be an antidote, and then, you know, just having us spend a certain amount of time in a non-judgmental state. Right? Very, very useful. When we, in our mindfulness, we start exploring judgments, and we might be listening for what are the top five judgments? What are the top ten? It's useful, actually, to write them down. What are your top five? You know, um, what do they say? What's the storyline? That's useful. We want to see them. If we see them, we can actually give them a name. And it's a way, again, I use the metaphor, if we're programming our radar. We're, we're saying, look out for that one. We can give them a name, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Financial judgment, <laughs> or you know, judgment of others, roommate judgment, <laughs> or maybe you have some here, you know, um, or you know, maybe um, negative self-talk or whatever. Give it, give it a label. Notice those, those 
main ones. And again, I've, I've stated very crucial to be careful when we're first studying judgments a lot, we will notice them a lot more. And we'll seem like we are judgment machines at times. And this can sometimes lead to us judging how many judgments there are. Be sure to count that as a judgment. <laughs> Very crucial because there's a way in which it, it seems it's on a different uh, logical order and we might think it's actually not a judgment to judge myself for how many judgments there are. It's not like the others. And so watch out for that one. So we look for that. We can feel that there can be some pain there. We can know that it's actually, we start to get a sense that it's actually painful to be judging or to be judged, that it can be connected with a certain amount of pain. You know, we start to get a sense of when there are judgments. We maybe can have recognized familiar voices. We start to get a sense of the bodily manifestations. Uh, one of the characteristics of judgments that often distinguishes it from pure discernment is the repetition. Judgments are very repetitive. You know, have you noticed that some? They will repeat themselves. If it's a simple discernment, it's not, we typically don't just you know, repeat a good idea over and over again. <laughs> right? We do repeat the judgment. So repetition is something to look for. Right? How it feels in the body and so forth. Study them, you know, look at these, look at these more carefully. We start to get a sense of the different voices. We may even recognize the voice as that maybe of a parent or of a teacher. You know, we, we may recognize that judgmental voice. Oh, that sounds like this person, right? We may find that. We may just get a sense of the continual quality of the judgments. You know, my colleague uh, Gil Fronsdell, a teacher at uh, Spirit Rock and at the Insight Meditation Center in, in uh, Redwood City, he says, if someone else followed us around and made the kind of comments that we make to ourselves, we would probably consider that person to be the most obnoxious person in the world. And yet we don't when we keep on making those comments to ourselves. So we start to hear the voices we start to say, oh, look at, the, look at that voice. And there's a nice, there's a nice um, description of this, of some of the voices by uh, psychologists uh, Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss, who live in the Bay Area. And, and they've written a very nice book on the inner critic, which will we'll have a reading list, which we'll give out probably on Saturday, which will have different readings. And they, they have a very nice book um, I think it has inner critic in the title, and they talk about different kinds of voices, particularly of self-judgment here, but they also talk about some voices of judging others, and they, they hear, this is from their book. Yeah, are you having trouble hearing? No, no, no. Who are the authors? These are Jay Early, E-A-R-L-E-Y, and Bonnie Weiss. It'll be on the reading list that, that we give out. So here are, the, here, are the, here are seven of these voices. One is the perfectionist. I see some nods. 
A second is the inner controller. The inner controller. The third is the taskmaster. The fourth is the underminer. The fifth is the destroyer. The sixth is the guilt tripper. And the seventh is the molder. Okay, I'll read these. Mold, the molder. The perfectionist tries to get you to do everything perfectly. It has very high standards to behavior, performance, and production. I won't ask for hands. A large percentage of hands would go up with that one. Okay. The inner controller tries to control impulsive behavior. It shames you after you binge or react with rage. Okay. The taskmaster tries to get you to work hard in order to be successful by telling you that you're lazy, stupid, or incompetent. The underminer tries to undermine your self-confidence and self-esteem so you won't take risks that might end in failure. It tells you that you are worthless and inadequate. It's pretty, is this? There's some humor here, but that, of course it's very harsh, right? The destroyer attacks your fundamental self-worth. It is deeply shaming. The guilt tripper attacks you for a specific action you took or didn't take. It constantly makes you feel bad and will never forgive you. The molder tries to get you to fit a certain social mold, mo uh, mode or act in a certain way that is based on your family or cultural mores. This one attacks you when you don't fit into that mold and praises you when you do. Right? So we start to hear those voices. You know, we start to feel how the different voices manifest in ourselves. You know, some of them we can recognize from family, some of them with culture. Some of them are the voices uh, from society that stereotype us, you know, as young or old or a woman or a man or a person of color or a person of this education or a white person or a particular religion. And I mentioned that there are ways that we can sometimes notice that we have these voices in us. And I mentioned that when we internalize the more negative voices, we can call that internalized oppression. And that's, in some ways, those voices can be seen a little more than when we internalize a sense of superiority, maybe as a man or a white person or you know, a well-educated person or a Christian, whatever, that we may have that sense of superiority and it can be much more hidden. Right? And we'll explore that more in some ways uh, later in the retreat. We'll go into more, more, more depth with that. So we start to get a sense of the voices in, by which we judge ourselves and by also which we judge others, you know, that we can see. And a lot of those internalized social voices are very much there in how we judge others. There's a lot of research on that, you know, that shows that, you know, the research, you know, for example, showing that um, They've done research where they give uh, like resumes for jobs, right? And they have the exact same qualifications, but maybe they have an African-American sounding first name and a quote-unquote white sounding name, 
And they show, you know, they've shown by this research that there are 50% more requests for interviews with the white sounding name. They've done that research in all sorts of ways, right? And so that internalized material gets translated into judgments, some of them subtle, some of them more overt, right? And so, you know, ultimately we want to transform all of that. So it's a lot, right? So we start to get, see those voices. You know, we can have, uh, we can have uh, voices related to our spiritual self-image. You know, we can have voices of superiority, you know, thinking, I am really spiritual. <laughs> and I show it by my spiritual wardrobe. And we can also, even the judgments really stay, you know, we can have the judgments for a long time. You know, I remember talking with someone who was a monk for 30 years, and I talked with him, and he, and he said, I asked him what was his, kind of still the work that he was doing, and he said, you know, I still really want people to like me. <laughs> right? right, very poignant, right? And I have found in... I've taught a few times our long retreat, our two-month retreat. People incredibly dedicated, practicing for one or two months. A lot of them, they come up against self-judgment. It still can be there, even if we've done a lot of inner work. So we see the voices. We see how the judgment is in the body. We start to see the patterns. What are the patterns by which the judgments uh, occur. We see, okay, that stimulates the judgment. Like my example of, I think I'm, someone's not listening to me, right? And I uh, judge that person, right? And I start to see, oh, it wasn't just my boss, but I noticed that in other contexts, right? We start to see patterns. All of this comes, this is this first stage of what I've called accessing judgments, starting to see the patterns, starting to then starting to go beneath the surface with the, you know, with the dropping down practice, we start to get a sense, sometimes we get a sense of that pain beneath the judgment. You know? We're going more deeply. We're, we're going, as it were, down that slope. We start to get a sense of what the voices are. We start to maybe get a sense of what the, kind of, is there some larger pattern? You know, maybe you start to get a sense of I'm, a lot of my judgments have to do with a sense I'm not okay or I'm not adequate in this way or something, or that this person isn't okay for this reason. We start, we're starting to get glimpses of actually what we look in more depth at at the second stage. Right? And with all of what we've been doing are developing the different tools, the mindfulness, the inquiry, the dropping down, the, also the practices that help us stay more balanced. Because as we go into this, again, a lot of it is going into difficult material. So we really want to have the capacity to at times just take a break, be with the beauty. And there's a beautiful poem. Let me see if I have this here. This is, this is from Mary Oliver. This is a poem, I think, about essentially finding that balance in the um, non-human world, you know, what we sometimes call nature. I think David Abrams has a phrase, the, the greater than human world, right? And this is called, when, I'm, when I Am Among the Trees. And listen in the poem for her self-judgment and then how she kind of goes somewhere else which has a balancing quality. 
When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. It's almost like connecting with the uh, awakened heart. Gladness, we, that's often a metaphor the, or a, a term the Buddha uses. The, the, the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself. Judgment, right? I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and shine. So we, as part of the tools, the resources, we develop that capacity to renew, to be among the trees or our equivalent of the trees and to remember our shining nature at times. Maybe it's in creativity, maybe it's in nature, maybe it's with certain people. You know, there's certain people we can be with and we know they're not gonna judge us, right? And they can really restore us, so maybe children, they can sometimes just some, renew something, right? Renew a sense of wonder and, you know, just friendliness. Right? So we, we develop these tools. We keep going beneath the surface. At a certain point, and this is moving to the second stage, at a certain point we start getting more glimpses of a sense maybe that there are some unifying patterns Maybe we have a sense, there's a sense, maybe we have a sense that I'm really hard on myself, I think I'm not okay. Or that there's um, some kind of judgment like the example that I gave two nights ago, the guy said, I'm gonna mess up. Some sense of inadequacy or something's not okay. Or um, some way that there is um, some deeper, origin, something that's generating these judgments. And in the second stage, we actually can start getting close to uncovering what may be generating our most persistent judgments. One way of talking about this is to talk about what generates them as core beliefs. This is a term used in a lot of circles. And how many of you are familiar with that term core belief and sometimes have heard, have heard it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's helpful. And it refers to deep, um, deep assumptions. And the word belief can be a little misleading because it's not something that's typically consciously thought. Like, I'll believe that. It's not really like that. And so Belief can be a little misleading. These are more what we might call unconscious assumptions or unconscious, um, call them unconscious beliefs, if that, if that makes some sense. They're almost like the organizing principles of our psyche that are typically unconscious or at best semi-conscious, right? And they are 
You know, so I might have an unconscious sense of I'm not okay. And this is going to deeply organize my experience. It's going to affect my relationships, how I look at the world, how I interpret quote-unquote success or failure. And what we start to do is we start to get a sense, and this can take a while, and we don't want to go there prematurely. A lot of this comes from looking, you know, being in that first stage for quite a while, right? And quite a while might mean months, and it can even mean years. You know, depends really on our background. And for some of us who've done a lot of work, we can go a little more quickly, and there's no better or worse about that. And so we can start to see that there can be these um, organizing principles. Maybe that's a little bit better than core belief. Core belief is a term often used, but organizing principle can fit more with the sense of it being relatively unconscious. Right? And what we do is we bring those organizing principles to consciousness. What was formerly a matter of ignorance, we bring to awareness. We start to see what's generating a lot of these judgments. We bring it to light. We learn how to see it, hang out with it, and so forth. So some examples of core beliefs. Typically, they are generated when we're fairly young. A lot of them when we're three or four or five years old. So here's an example of one. I'm four years old. I express my anger by yelling a lot. My parents do not like this. Maybe they were told by their parents not to express anger. For whatever reason, they want to control my anger. They tell me, don't be angry. Good boys aren't angry. Essentially, at age four, I have a choice. I can hold on to my anger and express it, and very possibly, at least in my own mind, not survive. Right? Or I can do what seems to be able to ensure the love of my parents. Most four-year-olds are going to make a certain choice. What's that choice? Just to suppress the anger, right? So, and what I do in that process is I develop an unconscious organizing principle or core belief that can be expressed very simply, anger is bad. Okay? And then I internalize it and I maybe express it in my daily life. Some of my fellow classmates get angry and I said, you're bad. Good, good boys don't get angry. And I express that at age nine around the kids, right? And I'm not at all aware of what happened when I was four. It's just part of my habitual reaction. And I start doing that, and I do that continually. And, you know, and then I get to be 30 or 40. And someone tells me or asks me, do you have an issue with anger? I say, who, me? Are you insulting me? You know, and, and 
but maybe I then, so when I get that feedback enough, so maybe I start to look into it. Maybe I notice the anger is connected with judgments and I see in the Spirit Rock Bulletin that there'll be a retreat on transforming the judgmental mind. <laughs> and I come to the retreat and I start to see, oh, gosh, a lot of my judgments are connected with anger. And I start to get on the path of following clues. And it may be quite some time till I get to the point that I see anger is bad. Does that make some sense? And all the while, until I get there, I am judging people for being angry. And I don't know where it's coming from. I'm just doing that. That's a core belief. Another example. I'm eight years old. My parents divorce. I form a core belief. If I get close to people, they will leave. Sometimes we call that having an abandonment issue. Right? And I have that as a belief about relationships. You know? And I, that gets triggered at times. You know? um, I get close to someone and the person you know, maybe I'm in, maybe 30 years later, I'm in a, a marriage and my partner says, you know, I want to go for, out for, I want to go for a, a six-day retreat on transforming the judgment line. <laughs> and I, my abandonment issues come up. My partner's leaving me. And I get really angry and agitated and maybe judge my partner. You know, you're leaving me, you know and all sorts of things there, and the judgment is coming out of that core belief. Does that make some sense? And what I have to do is actually, in both of those examples, is go beneath the surface, study that. You know, all this work is gonna take some time before I actually can see that there's a core belief there. Right? That's not easy. Right? You can see with the anger example or the abandonment, it could take some time to actually notice that that's the case. And so there are all sorts of um, core beliefs. Generally, you know, they're, they're, they fall in, in three main categories. One of them are beliefs about ourself. Another, a second is beliefs about relationships. And a third is beliefs about the nature of the world, right? And we could identify, you know, quite a number of them. There can be, <clears throat> There can be ones such as, you know, I'm not okay, I'm not adequate in this way, you know, I'm, you know, um, you know, my this part of me is not okay. This part that my anger is not okay, or my my energy energy is not okay, and we can form them like that. I should say that there also can be core beliefs, organizing principles which are positive, and. All of us have some of those as well. We could have core beliefs that this aspect of me is okay, or you know, um, maybe generally that I'm okay, or it could be that you know, so, uh, could be a positive core belief that my needs will be met. Some of us would have core beliefs my needs will not really be met. Yeah. Some people I've worked with, it could be one core belief I've seen quite a few people is. If there's a problem, 
I'm the cause of it. You know? And so there can be positive core beliefs that are more, we might say, more supportive, as well as the negative core beliefs, which are, tend to be linked with um, judgment and reactivity. So we start to get a sense, we start to get a sense of these. Um, you know, like the, the one, if something bad happens, it's my fault, is very common when there's a divorce. It's kind of how children's minds often work in terms of causality, right? Um, especially, especially if they're younger, or I'm not okay. So you have a sense of the core beliefs. There, there are a number of them, you know, could be about relationships. My needs will not be met. I can't ask for my needs to be met. Again, these are very common. I am not safe on my own. Um, Others will not listen to me. So you can hear these, and you know there's a lot of pain there, right? There's a lot of pain connected with these core beliefs. Again, that's why we really need to keep working with the heart practices, compassion. Because, you know, as we get in this territory, we're coming to grips with that. We're in in the presence of some very negative beliefs that have been there for a long time. And there's pain there. And it can be helpful to have a guide to go there slowly, to initially not go too much into them, but just kind of put your feet in the water, get a little sense of it. Eventually, we get to be familiar with these. And we start to learn how it feels when these core beliefs are present. And they can feel, I, I find myself using words, they sometimes feel when we get to know them well, like I'm in a fog when they take over, right? Suppose something bad happens and you just go into, I'm not, I'm not okay, into that mode. It can feel like a trance, like a fog, like a clouds come over us, you know, like something has just taken me away. Is that, is that familiar? You know, and as we look at that, we, start to, we actually can start to be aware of when the core beliefs are there. And that marks a very significant point in the transformative process. We start to get familiar with them. In a sense, we start to be able to be with them without much reactivity. We start to get a sense of them. We, maybe we have some sense of the origins. You know? Like when I worked with this person who said, I'm going to mess up every day it was helpful to know the origins in his family life, particularly from his brother and his father. Have a sense of it, and we can even have a little bit of compassion for where that was coming from. You know, as we go more deeply, there's a sense of that. There can be some familiarity with it. At first, it can be hard and painful. As we get more familiar with it, there's more of a sense of, this is the old pattern and I know it well, I'm not scared of it, I can be with it. And at that point, we become ready for the third stage. So you see, that can take a while, right? You know, we become ready for that stage where we move into the transformative process. That presupposes that we're really familiar with what I'm calling the core belief And we have to have a lot of resources there. We have to be able to, again, to be with that without it 
knocking us around too much. And there's a process to get there. Right? And, and it's good to go, go slowly. We'll be exploring this in guided meditations. And the third stage, at the third stage, we start to have an intuition of the readiness, our readiness to let go of the core belief. Our readiness to have the core belief move from a dominating position to the sidelines. Partly we do this by strengthening a lot of the qualities that we might call more awake qualities, the mindfulness, the heart practices. We start to get a sense of what might be a different way of approaching the territory that was described by the core belief. So if anger, if I have that core belief, anger is bad, that might be pretty, you know, the the transformative process there might be pretty easy to understand. I start to say, um, okay, anger, anger is bad is my core belief. How can I transform that? Well, partly I might start opening up and actually feeling anger. And work with it, learn with it. Maybe I start to have a, a kind of what I, we call sometimes a transformed belief or a reversal where I might say you know, to myself, kind of the substitute for the old core belief, anger is a normal part of human life. Right? Something as simple as that. That could be the basis for a transformation. Right? Something very simple. I just open to it. I do that over and over again, I have a different view, and so forth. And I may, by that, by that process, transform that core belief which has been around for 30 or 40 years. And again, we give thanks and gratitude to neuroplasticity. Maybe in, maybe in 20 years, there'll be like a archetypal figure on our altar for neuroplasticity. <laughs> You know, the goddess of neuroplasticity, <laughs> you know, might be. Because it's, um, it's a wonder, right? It's, it makes everything very uh, hopeful. You know, because again, the, the old patterns, the old core beliefs don't go away. But we actually, we start using, as it were, new neural pathways. And we use them more and more. The old ones are still there. And particularly, they can still get triggered under stress. That's good to know. You can have really done a great deal of transformative work, a stressful situation comes up, and you can find yourself back with the old one. And that's okay, that's normal. But you, if we have our tools, you'll notice it real quickly. And you'll say, you know, mindfulness and the heart practices to the rescue. <laughs> you know. And so we start to get this sense of something which can transform it. You know, maybe the person who had the abandonment issues might have a sense. And we do this in our groups and here in the retreat. We do this uh, through guided practices and we'll be, have them recorded. You can take them home and work with them, you know, you can work with them. And we might do a guided practice and someone might have a sense that 
the reversal or the transformed belief is something more like um, what? Um, I am connected. You know? Or I am part of a community. Something could be very simple, right? But the person actually, what we do is we try to have a sense intuitively of what that is. And then we ask, what supports that transformed belief getting stronger? Right. And so that's very personal. And so, you know, the person who's transforming the belief about anger, what's going to support that uh, transformed belief? Anger is okay or anger is a normal part. It's going to be opening to anger. Maybe it's um, doing a lot of the compassion practice. You know, maybe it's um, being with certain people. You know, we, we, have, we can be very specific and say, what's going to support the transformation? And we might have a list of six things which are going to support that. Right? You know, and maybe the, just transforming the abandonment uh, core belief, it might be, again, it might be really uh, cultivating my good friends. Right? Cultivating my good friends, it might be really developing, again, maybe the sense of compassion, spending a lot of time in community. It's going to be individual, but we might, what we do is we try intuitively to have a sense of what that transformation is, and then we identify supports which make that stronger. You know, one example, um, one person I worked with had done a lot of practice. Eventually she uncovered that she had a core belief that as a divorced woman, I cannot be happy. Obviously very socially conditioned, right? But she found that. That was connected with a lot of her judgments of self, right? As a divorced woman, I could be happy. When we did the practices to open up that sense of what is the transformed understanding or belief, it wasn't necessary, it wasn't the logical opposite. It was more, I am a brilliant, radiant being. <laughs> that was, and, and she would connect with that. And we asked what supports that sense of being a radiant, brilliant being. And, we, and she could identify, okay, here are these six things that really support that getting stronger. Right? For her, uh, metta practice, really crucial. Right? She could feel that way. So you get a sense of how we start to, again, in a protected environment, we start to get a sense of what the transformation is. It presupposes we've identified the core belief. It starts, we start to have a transformed sense and we start to have a sense of what's going to support that. And this is really pointing to the fourth stage where we have that sense of how do we really stabilize that transformation and integrate it with daily life, right? And that's where we carry out those activities. We really commit to them. We find the level of support that we, that we need. We learn how to bring that transformative work into um, all situations, including stressful ones. How does that, you know, how does my transformation work out when I get some of the, something like the original stimulus coming at me? Let's say I have a sense of inadequacy in my old core belief and I transform it with having a sense of my own inner beauty and then I get negative feedback at work. How do I keep that? Because that might 
tend to trigger the old stuff, right? right? So how do I how do I work with that while remaining open to feedback? You know, and so we we'll be looking at some of that last stage later in the retreat. How do we bring the judgment work into speech, into interaction, into situations that are that are more complex? How do we move between more inner work and being in the world? How do we do that? We'll be giving again more attention to that, the the last part of the retreat. So I think I'll I'll finish now and and just finish with um, a reading or two and just to say that this is one map of the transformative process. I think it, it has a certain simplicity to it. And it was based actually uh, on, a, on a somewhat similar map that I, that I got from the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. And I've applied it really to judgments. It has some very similar steps, but I've applied it to the work with judgments. I think, it, again, fairly, fairly um, kind of commonsensical when you look at the process. You know, the, the access, the deepening, the kind of the moving, moving towards seeing what generates the most chronic judgments, being in that territory, again, that can take quite a while, identifying the core beliefs, and then transforming them, and then bringing that out into daily life. That's our, that's our work. And um, we keep doing it. You know, we keep working with it. We, you know, we develop the resources, we go into the difficult territory, we do the work, we need community. We need community. So let me finish with one or two poems. Let's see. Oh, I didn't give you. I had some examples of core beliefs from Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, nobody likes me. Lucy, I wish I could like you, Charlie Brown, but I can't. (laughs) Another one. Dear Pencil Pal, you were my only friend. Not counting you, I am friendless. I have no other friends. Your friend, Charlie Brown. P.S. Everybody hates me. That's funny, but... You know, it's, uh, it's that way sometimes for us and for others. So this is, uh, yeah, two, two, two poems. This is particularly related to um, the self. Poem. Part of a poem from Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within. That's our process. Everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. That's what we're doing. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. 
And then I'll, I'll finish with a poem by uh, Derek Walcott. He's a great uh, poet from the uh, Caribbean who um, just died, I think, in the last month or two, I believe. This is called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was you. You will love again the stranger who was you. Give wine, give bread, Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. All your life whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your uh, very kind attention. And we'll um, come back in, in just about 15 minutes for our uh, sitting with continued uh, chanting at the end. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.